welcome to Proofing and Lies. This is a social science podcast about current events and delicious recipes. I'm Elle Rochford, a PhD candidate in sociology at Purdue University. I'm Andrew Shriver. I'm a public defender in Northeast Ohio. Each episode, we'll sift through the flour and the facts, bringing you tasty recipes and interesting topics. Welcome back to Proofing and Lies. This is our special holiday edition. Uh, today we're going to be talking about a couple of really nice holiday bakes that we did and also the subject of terrorism. So enjoy a nice, light, delightful, between Christmas and New Year's sort of easy pod, easy listening podcast episode. Uh, I do want to highlight, so we booked this interview and we recorded the interview about two weeks ago. Uh, so well before the Nashville Christmas Day bombing. Yes. Uh, so I do want to make that clear that we're talking about it uh, before uh, that incident. Um, I did touch base with our interview guest, who is the fabulous Anna Meyer. And uh, her comments on the incident is that, uh, and we'll talk about this in the interview, this incident would not qualify as domestic terrorism. And she gets into what the legal definitions of domestic terrorism are and why that is a really limited concept because the way we think about terrorism and the way we legally define terrorism are incredibly different and often in ways that are not helpful. And Americans in particular, although uh, she talks about Germany as well, have a lot of difficulty thinking about terrorists as human beings. So terrorism is like this worst thing you could possibly do. It's the most evil act of violence we can think of. And so the idea that particularly white people or Christian people could be involved in an act that's defined as terrorism is kind of a cognitive dissonance um, because we have trouble believing that people who are not purely evil could could perpetrate terrorist acts. Uh, it's a really great interview. I'm sorry I wasn't uh, here for it. You're just going to hear Elle doing the interview. Uh, I had a, a family situation. Thankfully, everything's fine now, but I had a, a family issue come up, uh, so I wasn't able to make this interview. Um, I was just going to tell people you were very quiet. <laughs> I was just in the background say I have nothing to contribute. No, but I think Elle did a fantastic interview. That's uh, really great stuff. Uh, and speaking of really great stuff, we did a couple of really cool bakes for this one, we too. We did. Yeah, so we decided instead of doing a specific uh, terrorism-themed bake, which Lord only knows what that would have been. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there aren't good outcomes with, with that line of, of theme. So we decided to just highlight the baking we did for our holidays. So my favorite thing we did uh, is actually dog treats. So I made peanut butter dog biscuits for the dogs in our life. And we decorated them with little paw prints and their initials. And they turned out just really cute. They were adorable. Uh, and the dogs loved them. So I'll probably throw the recipe for that up. It was really easy to make because it's just a one bowl recipe. And they, they just turned out so cute. Yeah. For human bakes, though, I think that also sounds a little fraught. <laughs> uh, for the baked goods for people. We made, uh, I think my favorite thing was the gingerbread and eggnog tart. Yeah, so it was a, it's a gingerbread crust, which was delightful. And then a, uh, like an egg custard almost, but with eggnog as the base instead of milk, which that, was oh. 
very, very good, very delicious. It was, it was so rich, so good. Um, and my, uh, my family, my dad and my grandmother are both big. Like every year we get them and pretty much just them an egg custard pie and, and they loved this. So that's kind of the highest compliment I think you could give. I was, I was excited. Well, and I was excited because there was every opportunity for this tart to fail because I invented the recipe. Yes. Um, so there, you can find baked egg custard or baked um, eggnog custard desserts. Um, and I didn't want to go that route. So I've, I've gotten pretty good at making just a normal like British custard, which is egg yolks and corn flour or cornstarch sugar um, and milk and you cook it down and I thought well why couldn't I use eggnog and the answer is because eggnog is made with eggs so you're essentially making custard with something that's already basically a custard and I thought for sure this was not going to work out I had actually bought backup ingredients because I was convinced this wasn't going to work and it is the best silkiest custard I have ever made oh my gosh yeah, it was it was delicious. I love it. Yeah, and I have I I think this is it's so easy to get spices now that I think people don't appreciate how amazing it is to grate your own. Um, so I actually have a stick of cinnamon and a little nutmeg, which is it looks like a little nut, um, and I fresh grated the spices over the tart, and I I was impressed with how it, it was, turned out. Yeah, it was, it was so, so good. good. Uh, absolutely recommend. It's, I think, going to be a holiday classic now. So I, I yes. baked the gingerbread tart separate. Um, I have a nice little tart pan. I 10 out of 10 recommend if you like baking to invest in a tart pan. Baked the gingerbread separately. I had to do it extra thin because the gingerbread recipe I use poofs up a lot, which is great for cookies, but not if you want to fill a tart. So fully baked that. That turned out beautifully, better than I expected. And then the custard I poured in while it was... Uh, not hot, but still cooling so that it got a nice smooth layer to it. And then just refrigerated refrigerated that for about a day uh, until Christmas. So that was a great way to make ahead. And then together, we made a chocolate coffee caramel cake, which was very elaborate. I'll send, I'll, I'll show pictures on the Instagram, but I've been working on my caramel work. And Andrew got me a very beautiful marble rolling pin which meant I could do the thing where you like flick caramel over it and then it turns into like a little half shell. Um, and that was beautiful. It was gorgeous. Yeah. I was thrilled. Yeah. And the cake was delicious and rich and wonderful. And he baked that all by himself. Oh, well, yeah. I, I just, the just the sponge. The sponge yeah. Was. He made, he made the cakes and I did the, I used a caramel sauce recipe to make some caramel buttercream um, the recipe we base this off of is a half-baked harvest recipe. Um, we deviated on the caramel and the ganache because I have my own recipes I like for those. And both of our mothers gave us Hershey's chocolates and like Hershey's kisses. So we have like an abundance of those. And we actually chopped those up really finely and used those as the melted chocolate instead of going out to buy chocolate chips. And it worked really well. Yeah, I think that, that turned out amazing. Which is great because I don't love Hershey Kisses, but I do love baking with chocolate. So that was a fun way to get the, the chocolate into the batter. Yeah, that was cool. Um, so we will post so many photos of all of those things. And uh, you might need a giant piece of chocolate cake to, to eat after you listen to the, the grim topic we're going to talk about today. Yeah. 
But it's it's educational. It's interesting. It's a really good interview. Thank you again uh, to Anna for being on. Um, and happy holidays, everyone. Enjoy. Happy holidays. All right. I'm here with Anna Meyer. Uh, she is a PhD candidate in political science at the University of Madison, Wisconsin. And we're here to talk about something that I think uh, increasingly Americans think about, although I'm guessing you think about it in different ways. Uh, we're going to talk about terrorism. Uh, so just like a light, easy, fun day. So I guess, could we start like just basic, basic stuff with what what is terrorism? What counts as terrorism? Well, first off, thank you so much uh, for having me with this very light and happy topic. All of my <laughs> days are very uplifting uh, in, in this work. What is terrorism? Oh, gosh. Uh, how long do your listeners have uh, to listen to me ramble? Um, I, so I think I will, I'll start by talking about how academics typically think about terrorism and then how I've come to think about it and why I think about it that way. So. Typically, academics, when we're talking about what is terrorism, we're talking about what is a distinct form of political violence. So what makes terrorism different from, say, insurgency, from rebellion, from murder, from a hate crime, from all these other categories that we have to describe violence? And the way that people typically distinguish terrorism from those other types of violence is thinking about it as politically motivated violence. So that means generally uh, an organized group or perhaps an individual inspired by some kind of political ideology is using violence to draw attention to their cause. And typically, whoever they're attacking, uh, normally we think about these as being civilians or non-combatants, people generally who are not like in a warfare kind of situation. So like the people who are doing the attacking, like they're, the point is not to target those specific people, but rather to send a message by doing this, by saying this is a really extreme act of violence. Generally, we support not killing random civilians. And so by doing that, that will draw a lot of attention to whatever this cause is, often paradoxically by sort of delegitimating that cause because of the horrific violence that was involved in trying to push it forward. I find that both unsatisfactory as a way of distinguishing terrorism from other forms of violence and to not really be in line with how policymakers uh, legislators, people who actually make policy in response to this violence that we call terrorism, think about what terrorism is. So sounds like that's pretty broad because I could think of a lot of like mass shootings in the U.S. that you could stretch to fit into that definition. Yeah, I mean, pretty much any sort of violence that you want, uh, depending on how you define political, uh, would fit under that umbrella. Um, which means the term doesn't really help us explain much of anything, especially if we're thinking about terrorism in comparison to other things people might do to advance some sort of political cause. And I'm guessing that terrorism is like some kind of formalized label that people put on violence and it has policy implications. So there has to be some kind of legal definition, right? It does and it doesn't and there is and there isn't. Uh, and, and what, what I mean by that is there is a federal legal definition of terrorism in the U.S. Most countries have at least one. Uh, different U.S. government agencies actually use different definitions, which, as you might guess, is problematic. Um, some individual states have their own definitions, which aren't always in line with the federal definitions. Also problematic. Um, the biggest thing I think in the U.S. that's interesting is that while 
it's a difference between categorizing violence legally as terrorism and then being able to actually charge somebody with the crime of terrorism. Uh, those are two different things. And so something that we might colloquially call terrorism, say the president gets on TV or on Twitter and says that Antifa uh, are terrorists and he's designating them terrorists. Legally, he can't actually do that. Um, but we can ask questions about what does the simple act of a political leader using that terminology to refer to a group, what does that do? Uh, what sorts of actions or response do we think that justifies? If it does become a legal label, there are consequences that can come along with that. Um, nuances here that I can happy to get into if uh, I think that would be interesting. But generally, if we apply a label of terrorism legally to a group, then that invokes things like financial sanctions, pan depending in both criminalization of membership. So somebody who joins or attempts to join can be charged with terrorism that way. So there are consequences, that is the point. I guess, I guess I'm thinking, I think post 2000, right, Americans kind of concept of terrorism is, is TV shows like Homeland and 24 that I think we've, we've rooted yep. terrorism specifically with like a certain kind of religious extremism and from kind of a specific region. And what I found really interesting is you look at Germany and the U.S., right? So could you tell us a little bit about the, yeah, that context? Right. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, looking from about the 1970s to today, look at patterns of ways that people in Germany have thought about terrorism and similarly how people in the U.S. have thought about terrorism and what falls into that category. Uh, and the first thing that we notice when we do that is that the category of terrorism is not static. I think for people who are our age, and especially our students, this idea of terrorism being identified with Islam, uh, with the Middle East, um, which is problematic for a whole host of reasons that's been their entire adult lives, at least in the U.S., because of 9-11. But it wasn't that long ago in the 70s when both in Germany, I think it's easier to see than in the U.S., but also in the U.S., that that term was really closely associated with left uh, activity, largely in response to uh, the Cold War, the Vietnam War, sort of action we see around that. The same about that time period and now, and this is true both in Germany and in the U.S., is that you don't see the term terrorism being applied as readily to the large amount of far-right neo-Nazi white supremacist violence happening around the same time. Um, you see a lot of, back in the 1970s in the U.S., you see a lot of right-wing violence growing out of disillusionment with the Vietnam War. You see veterans coming back and getting sort of drawn into these pre-existing really extreme white supremacist movements um, because they feel disillusioned or upset with the government or something along those lines. And that sort of becomes the foundation of the contemporary white power movement we're seeing, unfortunately, growing right now. And the German situation is a little bit different, but you have sort of the same leftover neo-Nazi, uh, or back then regular Nazis <laughs> coming out of World War II that never went away um, and were never really fully reckoned with. And so that's a continuous backdrop to the sort of more one-off or less constant left-wing, far-left activism happening at the same time that gets labeled terrorism. And we see that slowly transitioning before the end of the Cold War, but mostly after towards the more Islamist extremist category. I'm thinking about there, there was a while back, Homeland Security had like released some statement that like domestic terrorism was a, a bigger threat than international terrorism. 
Um, could you talk a little bit about like what what is domestic terrorism? How does that get defined? Yeah. So this is a really interesting question, and I will uh, spoil my punchline um, that domestic versus international terrorism are not helpful categories and really obscure the what we think of now as new but are not new transnational linkages between far right groups in particular. But thinking about domestic terrorism, typically when we use that term, what we mean is violence that originates in the United States or whatever country we're talking about. Um, and in the past 20 years or so, when we think about domestic terrorism, we've also within that category thought largely about what's called differentially homegrown extremism or terrorism, which is referring to people who are quote unquote radicalized into Islamist uh, extremist movements and then become affiliated with Al Qaeda or the Islamic State and carry out violence on behalf of those groups. International terrorism, we typically think about as groups coming from somewhere else. Uh, these are your Al Qaeda's, these are your Islamic States, these are your uh, FARCs, your IRAs, groups not originating in whatever country we're talking about at the moment. The reason I say that those aren't helpful categories uh, is because they really obscure the, the multiple ways that people become drawn into these movements and the fact that they're increasingly not localized to specific places. I mean, even if you think about going back to a group like the IRA, which we think about as being very localized in Ireland and then in the United Kingdom a little bit more broadly, there was a lot of recruitment and activism that was really important happening for that group in the United States uh, among the Irish diaspora community. And that's relatively common uh, with a lot of these groups, um, whether we're talking about diasporas providing funding, whether we're talking about these groups drawing inspiration from international networks, uh, and you have one person who looks to, say, a neo-Nazi group in the United Kingdom and uses that as an inspiration then to go shoot up a mosque in New Zealand. So there's a danger in putting these categories, putting domestic versus international in boxes like that. Well, I hate, I hate most binaries, so I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad to get support on that. What I'm thinking about, too, the role of social media, so you, I'm smiling when you're talking about the IRA, so there's a, a like genre of TikToks that are, are IRA TikToks, and a lot of it is coming from America. Um, interesting. Irish, oh, yeah. Oh, they're funny, right? Um, so I'm, I guess I'm thinking, what is, does terrorism look different now that we're so interconnected uh, on the internet, or is it kind of just repackaging the same kind of dynamics? I think it looks much the same, but faster and more, if that makes sense. In, this is going to make me sound old, like in the olden days, before, <laughs> <laughs> before social media and before the internet really took off, how did groups recruit outside of their own immediate uh, networks, newspapers, family relationships, through diaspora connections. So not to say that international recruitment and propaganda and stuff wasn't possible, it was a lot slower and there was a lot less of it um, because you relied so heavily on these much slower communications networks and these very personal relationships that already existed. All of those things are still true to some extent. We know that personal relationships are still very, very important for drawing people into this sort of violence. We know that communications networks are very, very important also for drawing people in. What encapsulated within a communications network is now much broader than it used to be with the internet and social media. Um, it just makes what these groups have always been trying to do easier. No, that makes total sense. I, I look at social movements online and that's usually mm -hmm. about what I say is social media just makes things faster and cheaper. Exactly, yeah. So I'm thinking about uh, particularly kind of uh, white nationalists 
-hmm. What's the deal? What are we doing about that? (laughs) Oh, okay. So the first thing that I will say on that is that I think we have, uh, I'll use like the role we people in general often have this misconception that white nationalism is new or if not new, at least new in the amount of activity that we're seeing now. And for the most part, that is not the case. White nationalist nationalist movements, at least in the U.S., um, the reason that we've been able to see such a spike of activity so quickly and people are are quite alarmed, and rightly so, by that spike in activity is because these groups have deep-seated networks and infrastructures that they have built up for decades. It's common to talk about how good the far right is at using the Internet. The reason they're so good at using it is because they have been using it since the beginning, since the Internet came into existence. The white power movement in the U.S. has been on it even if just to draw in uh, financial donations and manage uh, monetary networks and such. Like, they already know how to do this. Well, I think that's something that would surprise a lot of Americans, but there are actually, like, way back when the the FBI was monitoring their their purchasing, the um, KKK and different, Mm -hmm. like, very extremist right-wing groups, and they said, oh, don't worry, they're not buying guns, they're spending all their money on computers. What are they gonna do with those? <laughs> and as, as someone reading it in 2020, I'm like, oh no. <laughs> exactly, right? Well, h- hindsight is 2020. Uh, and at the time, I can have a little bit more sympathy for the FBI not quite realizing uh, what they had on their hands. But yeah, and, al- and also the white power movement, white nationalist groups, had enormous stockpiles of weapons in the 80s and the 90s, especially. And the FBI was not, and other uh, national security agencies were not unaware of that. Uh, They weren't particularly good at hiding the fact that they had large stockpiles of weapons. Uh, And so I have, on that side, less sympathy um, for for not engaging as heavily with those groups. well, that sounds not dissimilar to now, right? They're, they're very open with large stockpiles of weapons and very online. So I don't know if that gives me hope or less hope. <sighs> I mean, I'm quite cynical about all of these things. And every time the FBI or the Department of Homeland Security comes out and says white supremacy or right wing extremism or domestic terrorism, whatever sort of term we want to use to describe uh, these people, uh, I use violent white supremacy in my own work. Uh, saying this is the biggest threat to the homeland, this is the biggest terrorism threat, and we're taking this seriously. Like There's an enormous grain of salt in that because none of this is new. And it's almost as though these agencies are not willing to really grapple with the fact that this isn't new. And there's a constant recasting of, well, this violence is different than it used to be, or these groups are organizing differently than they used to be. They're more online and we're not used to dealing with that. Part of that is true. Bureaucracies are slow-moving animals, really slow to change. If you haven't had analysts working on these issues historically, then bringing people on all of a sudden to do that takes time. So there's a little bit of truth in that, but at the same time, it's hard to drum up much sympathy for, why didn't you do this earlier? Why didn't you do this earlier? Although it's not surprising when you're thinking about groups that, white supremacist organizations that, unlike, say, Islamist extremist groups, don't feel quite as foreign, don't feel necessarily quite as threatening because the aims of those groups, if not their methods, are not entirely out of line um, with sort of dominant hegemonic ideas about how the country should be run. See that very evidently with Trump, but even that is a much lesser 
or seemingly more benign sort of underlying ideology with other presidential administrations as well. That's sort of what I do in my work is sort of try to unearth the ways that this, these white supremacist institutions have been around for a long time and are much, much harder to uproot or to change uh, than people think, even when people are uncomfortable with them. That sounds fascinating. So could you, could you talk a little bit more about that? Like maybe what an example of, of an institution like that is? Sure. Um, so in my work, a lot of what I do is I go and I talk to policymakers in Berlin and in Washington, D.C., uh, bureaucrats, staffers, uh, pe the people who actually have to do the down and dirty work day to day of, of putting these of putting policy together, of enforcing policy and making all these ideals that legislators and executives have into reality. And so an example that I think is really useful uh, from the U.S. So in 2009, there was an analyst at uh, the relatively young at that point Department of Homeland Security uh, that put together with a very small team a report on far-right extremism in the United States. And it was the first kind of report that DHS had ever produced on this kind of topic. And basically it just said, this is a threat that you might want to be worried about. Here's some basic information about far-right extremism in the U.S. That report got torn to shreds uh, by the media, by uh, by uh, members of Congress on Capitol Hill. Uh, there were calls for Janet Napolitano, who was then the Secretary of Homeland Security, to resign from her position. There were demands the report be retracted. Uh, it eventually was, and that entire unit was dismantled that put it together, which was still not very many people, but was dismantled and to this day has not really been reformed. And that was now 11, almost 12 years ago, which is not that long and quite an outrageous response to a very simple statement of far-right extremism. It's a thing, which has been true in this country since the founding. I mean, it reminds me of the backlash uh, the 1619 Project saw, or like mm -hmm. the banning of critical race theory of, it's just true. It's just a report uh, on true things that happened. Um, right. But, but truths that, that white people, and especially white people in power, have never been forced to confront, because that's how white supremacy works, that you don't question these institutions, and they become so deep entrenched that the idea that you could question them, not that you, even that you would want to, but that you could, doesn't even cross your mind. Um, there's, no, there's no intuition, there's no reflex to do that. And when somebody comes along and says, well, these things aren't natural, like this this isn't a self-evident way to organize a country. It was a choice. And that unsettles your sense of reality. And even if you're sympathetic towards that unsettling, you're kind of like, oh, crap, I'm uncomfortable. And white people hate being uncomfortable. Yeah, that is, I do some uh, diversity, equity, inclusion committee work. And that mm -hmm. is like usually what we have to lead with, with, which is like, the worst thing in the world is not being uncomfortable. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, it, and it's such a, an interesting foil when we're talking about people of color who are being actually killed, evicted, displaced, incarcerated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you are sitting in a desk in a position of relative power and you are being made to feel slightly uncomfortable because we told you that you are part of an institution that has these premises components. That is so hard for people. <laughs> I think it's also interesting that Americans are very comfortable with the idea that there are religious radicals, but mm -hmm. that they cannot be Christian, that Christians don't become extremists. Oh, um, no. And it, 
and it's so interesting when people demand, and you see this a lot in academic circles, uh, academics who demand that Muslim academics who do not come out and explicitly condemn every single time there is an attack by an Islamist extremist group, not come out and condemn terrorism as a blanket category, that they must be sympathetic towards those groups. And it's quite disgusting. Um, but I think sort of reflects the un common understanding in academia, as well as more generally, that terrorism equals Muslims. Muslims must apologize for it. White people and Christians don't have to apologize for white supremacist and Christian extremism. When I think, I mean, it just seems like such a, like a racialized term that I think Americans in particular struggle thinking about terrorism outside of Islamic terrorism. Well, I think we have this idea, and there's some public opinion survey research to support this, that terrorism, what that term actually means is it's the most illegitimate form of violence that we can come up with. That we apply that term and immediately the actual causes or motivations of the people doing it are made irrelevant. The violence no longer has any sort of legibility within our normal political, political process. And so we don't have to engage seriously with those ideas and where they come from and why people hold them. Just so like, okay, this is terrorism. That means that we obliterate it. That means that we throw people in jail. Um, we don't have to engage with it rationally because it itself is not rational. We have made it irrational by applying this term. Well, that's, I mean, and that's really interesting because I imagine the implication then is that anyone suspected of terrorism, you know, is subject to any kind of irrational treatment by the state. Like, that seems to be the kind of troubling conclusion. Yeah, so I'll give you an example. So under U.S. law, uh, if an organization is, is labeled as what's called a foreign terrorist organization, what that does is it, a number of things happen, but it criminalizes membership in that organization and it criminalizes provision of what's called material support, um, which can include everything from money, clothing, other kinds of donations, as well as providing one's own person, so joining. Where the material support law often gets used is with asylum seekers. So there are a number of cases of people, often women, coming in from Central American countries, uh, or Latin America or South American countries where they were kidnapped by uh, a group that's on the foreign terrorist organization FTO list. Um, this also happens with people coming in from the Middle East uh, and parts of Sub-Saharan Africa uh, who were bribed, say, or who were forced to pay bribes in order to travel through an area. They are, their claims are rejected on the grounds that they provided material support to terrorists by being kidnapped or by paying a bribe to travel which doesn't seem like the most useful way of applying that law or the best usage of counterterrorism resources. And we don't have statistics on how often that happens because immigration courts don't keep records, but there are enough anecdotal cases to suggest that it happens with some regularity. Ooh, that's grim. Wow. I was also reading, so this becomes troubling, right? It, it's, Number one, the definition of terrorism is really flexible, so you can kind of do with it what you want. And then once you label something terrorist adjacent, you can deny people all kinds of rights. Um, so I was reading something that said that the US and international law like disagree on labeling certain things as terrorists. And I, I wondered if you could speak on that or maybe explain some more about this. I think it had to do with like a Russian 
agency was labeled in the US as a terrorist agency, but not internationally. And there's all sorts of like tensions about that. Okay, um, so there are a couple things happening here, and I'm not sure specifically about the case you're discussing, but I think I know what you're talking about. And so we'll see if, if I'm right in that way. So the first thing I'll say is that under international law, so if we're talking about United Nations, uh, there is no agreed upon definition of terrorism internationally. This is not surprising. When we think, if we think about terrorism as being violence that governments decide is illegitimate, every government's going to have a different opinion on that. Can't get 190-ish countries into a room to agree, and that hasn't happened. Not surprising. But when there's international disagreement among countries, that becomes a problem for enforcing any sort of sanctions against these groups. And so the case that I think you're talking about uh, is the Russian imperial movement, uh, which is, does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds right. You're, okay. You know more about it than I do. Okay, so the Russian imperial movement is actually slightly misnamed, um, operates primarily in Eastern Ukraine, and is an ultranationalist militant group that runs paramilitary training camps for white supremacists and far-right extremists of all stripes uh, throughout Europe, and increasingly a few from the U.S. as well. Uh, and this is, yeah, and this is a group that the United States, uh, in April of this past year, designated as a specially designated global terrorist. I won't go into specifics of what that means, but it was the first time the U.S. had ever designated a white supremacist organization as a terrorist organization. It was kind of a big deal, uh, or at least it was made out to be a big deal. The fact that other countries have not designated the Russian imperial movement as a terrorist organization means that there's difficulty in enforcement uh, or any sort of incentives for enforcement of sanctions against this group and members of this group. If members of this group can sort of avoid detection by U.S. entities, then they're not going to face any sort of sanction or criminal liability elsewhere. Um, I will also say that this group is was an interesting first choice for the U.S. because it doesn't operate in the U.S. really. It's not super well known internationally, which is potentially one reason why many countries have designated it. It's never actually engaged in violent attacks that we might think of as being terrorism. It's trained people uh, who then have expressed interest in going on to perpetrate some kinds of violence, but the group itself has not engaged in what we might think of as terrorist violence. So it's a pretty low-stakes classification. The U.S. can say, look, we're doing something about white supremacy. We have designated this group as a white supremacist organization, but it's a group that has very little bearing on what's going on in the U.S. and allows the U.S. to say, we're dealing with white supremacy. White supremacy is a problem over there. It's not something that we're thinking about as coming from or directly affecting the U.S. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, it's interesting because every few months you see some renewed interest that like, oh, you know, we're, we're going to really take seriously the threat of domestic terrorists coming out of these white supremacist groups. But that's the only one that the U.S. has labeled as a terrorist group? It is. And there's a, so there's a legal reason for that, sort of. Uh, so in the U.S., it is legally impossible to designate a purely domestic organization as a terrorist organization. There is no legal mechanism to do that. So all of these petitions on change.org to designate the KKK are great. Um, there is no way legally to do that currently. So there is no, so that, I mean, that, 
is kind of just a fascinating logical thing about America, right? Like you can't both be an American and a terrorist. Is that the right there? So the, there are three ways you can be an American and be charged with terrorism. You can be involved in uh, a WMD attack, which technically under the law means anything that involves a bombing, but in practice has been interpreted to mean chemical, biological, radiological weapons attacks. Uh, you can be involved in an attack that, that has to do with transportation. So for example, there was a guy, I'm from Nebraska originally, there was a guy in Nebraska a couple of years ago who held up a train, yelled a lot about awful white supremacist things, terrible racist things. He got charged with terrorism because train, transportation, that linkage is because of 9-11. The third way, which is the most common way, is that you can be associated with a designated foreign terrorist organization. Okay. So, not a domestic one, because those don't exist under U.S. law, uh, foreign only. I feel like I'm sure there's, there's got to be like a whole book on that, because that is <laughs> a fascinating concept. It's, it's really interesting, and it surprises me. Most people don't know that. Um, it's not something we advertise, and it would be a really easy way for law enforcement officials in particular to get around the awkward question of why don't you treat white supremacists as terrorists? And it's an incomplete explanation. It shouldn't be a sad them, but it would be an easy thing for them to say, well, legally, we can't do this. And they just don't. So it surprises people. Yeah, I, that's an excellent point for why I'm even more surprised that's not better known. That's, I mean, it's throwing me through a loop, to be honest. So what, is there an equivalent? I mean, I suppose what it reminds me of is the way we police gangs and gang activity. And you can label, you know, any group of people on a city block as a gang almost. Is that so, maybe an equivalent or? Kind of, yes. Um, so like we have gang related crimes, we have crime uh, statutes that get at some similar overlapping crimes, especially in the area of racial violence. People who are against any sort of domestic terrorism classification or crime will tell you, well, we already have statutes against murder uh, and assaults and blowing things up and all of this other stuff. And so why do we need an additional statutory layer to call this terrorism? And I think there are two reasons why that could be useful. One, because we have this sense in our minds of terrorism as the most illegitimate, worst kind of violence. And so what we call terrorism matters for how we think about different political ideologies, different groups of people who might be associated rightly or wrongly with those ideologies. So there's symbolic importance there. There's also just basic law enforcement importance. So I was talking once with somebody who used to work uh, at the National Counterterrorism Center in DC and the way that this person explained it was, since we don't have a domestic terrorism statute, if somebody, say a white nationalist commits a murder, he's affiliated with the Aryan Brotherhood, which is a neo-Nazi skinhead movement in the US, he gets charged with murder, he's convicted, he goes to prison. His parole officer, all of the people assigned to pay attention to him don't know that he was affiliated with the Aryan Brotherhood. So this gives him room in prison to reconnect with, that, with those kinds of groups if he is eventually released on parole, again, to reconnect with those groups, and his parole officer won't know that there's a white nationalist component here. He just thinks that they're, he's dealing with a murderer. So there's a problem here. We're keeping track of people throughout the system without some sort of terrorism crime. Right. Well, it makes sense that interventions would be different, right? When I think you see this with, with domestic violence, like 
yes, hitting someone is a crime, but domestic violence is a specific crime because the causes and preventions are specific to that Exactly. Crime. Exactly. When I would imagine, especially with things that are deeply networked, I know um, conditions of your parole might be you can't associate with, you know, known felons or with past associates, but it seems like a huge loophole to say like, well, you can't associate with your past known associates, but here's this huge network of people you don't know that you can connect right back up with. Exactly. I think the different ways of dealing with prevention uh, and uh, reoffense is an important way of thinking about this. Because um, you're right, the mechanisms are absolutely different for somebody who is engaged in murderous activity because they are a white nationalist versus somebody who engages in murderous activity because they're part of a, I don't know, like a, a drug ring or something. Well, and I'm thinking too that at least growing up 90s, 2000s, the, the prevention and intervention for terrorism is just drone strikes, just bomb everything to death. And I think if we start thinking about maybe Americans as terrorists, we might have to think a little more critically about what our solutions to terrorism is. Absolutely. And I think Germany is an interesting comparison here. Um, the Germans have really been ahead of the curve on what we call countering violent extremism, preventing violent extremism programs that are designed to go in and either catch people before they engage in quote-unquote terrorist behavior or for helping people de disengage um, from that activity if they're already taking part in it. And so I have been fortunate enough to have the opportunity to talk to a bunch of people who are involved in that work in Germany. And what's interesting and what makes me even more cynical about this whole thing is that the vast majority of programs there, despite that country's history, despite the fact that it's had far racialized violence since World War II and before that, that the vast majority of these programs are aimed at Islamist extremists um, or, or people who the government thinks have the potential to become Islamist extremists. And I just think it's a really interesting way that the sort of biases about what we think terrorism is felt into our prevention or countering violent extremism initiatives, regardless of whether we're launching drone strikes against these groups in foreign countries and deciding that we're going to sort of violate a sovereign airspace in that way, or if we're doing it with our own citizens and thinking about who is most likely to be at risk for this type of violence. So there's a really sort of underlying ideological bias there, or perhaps to go back to just what we were talking about earlier, discomfort. Um, regardless of the mechanism, whether it's more violent uh, airstrikes or less violent in intervention, sitting in a circle and talking, um, still be there. That's, yeah, disheartening to see how, like, whiteness is centered in those prevention measures when it seems like white right-wing extremism is sort of globally on the rise, or at least in the West, it's on the rise. Yes. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, when you said earlier that this was going to be a, a depressing topic, like, I wasn't kidding. Yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, often the feedback I get when I'm teaching is like, you know, this class just makes me sad all the time. It's really good. It's really interesting, but I'm just mm -hmm. sad all the time. Oh, yeah. Um, My students are the same way. Well, is there, is there anything that gives you hope? Are there things maybe in the German prevention that, that are promising? 
<sighs> the Germans won't like it when I say this. The German system does not give me a ton of hope. Uh, it's, it's different than the U.S. system in that there is more attention towards what we might think of as humane responses to violence, where the first instinct is not to just go kill the person who did something, but to try and rehabilitate them. Now, there are issues with what we think about as rehabilitation. Is it possible to disconnect somebody from an ideology and is it even necessary or right or possible to do that? But I think what is really the root cause of a lot of uh, this this prevalence of whiteness in terrorism discourse and terrorism policies in ways that we don't often recognize immediately like, is the larger institution of white supremacy itself. Uh, and so I think that the sort of broader efforts, very, very slow but towards changing public sentiment. I mean, you saw this with the uprisings this past summer in a sort of longer, slower process uh, since Ferguson in the U.S., that there is some sort of slowly changing public sentiment. Uh, and I think that's necessary because what we're really looking for here is a broad sociocultural shift in who we think about as belonging to a specific society. We think of it as being worthy of being a full participant in that society. And what does that participant look like? And what is their life experience? And that is an enormous, <laughs> enormous change that is not going to happen quickly. But you can't disconnect that from what we think of as security threat and where we think those threats come from. And unfortunately, in today's parlance, that means stopping the terrorism on those people because it may, means we can do whatever we want with them because that violence is illegitimate, it's irrational, and so we can't confront it with sort of normal, quote-unquote normal, responses. Um, so I guess I draw, I draw hope from the uh, radical Black activists who are on the ground really trying to push through these, this massive social change. Uh, and I think the best thing that I can do as an academic who is interested in these issues and thinks that the term terrorism is really unhelpful in a lot of these cases, uh, and witnesses very cynically the really slow pace of any sort of change to white supremacy in government institutions is to support these grassroots efforts uh, and to really listen to people doing that work, uh, academics or otherwise, and hearing their perspectives and the experiences of their communities existing within this broader sort of counterterrorism praxis. Wow, thank you. That's that's like a beautiful like way to wrap this this conversation up. I think, um, and I was struck by how much of I think the things that you're talking about would be different if our bureaucracies looked like our citizenry, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think I think you know talking about white supremacy as terrorism is not as shocking if you're not white, right? Right. Yeah. Like yeah. None of my I often get the question from people who study uh, racial and ethnic politics, uh, what in your work is surprising? And the answer is, well, nothing, depending on your positionality. Um, nothing I am saying is surprising if you study race in the United States. Uh, unfortunately, it remains surprising to people who work on national security and terrorism in the United States. So part of the work is breaking down that barrier and having that conversation across some sub-disciplines. And also, more importantly, bringing in people of a variety of racial and sociocultural and, and economic backgrounds and life experiences into these spaces where policy decisions actually get made. So where, where can people find you and find your work? Yeah, um, so I am 
for better or worse, very active on Twitter. Uh, you can find me uh, at the Meyer PS. If people are interested in reading more about my academic work, um, my website uh, is annameyer.net. Uh, and people should feel free if they have questions or concerns or hate mail. I get that too. Uh, reach out to me on Twitter. My, my DMs are always open uh, and I am always interested in carrying conversations forward respectfully. Wow. Thank you so much for being virtually here. Thank I'm you really for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to, to share this with our listener base. Um, hopefully, it won't bum them out too much. <laughs> Well, uh, uh, what can you do? Sum them out appropriately. Yes, it's an educational bumming out. Be active in your local community uh, and feel efficacy about that, maybe? Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs>